The creation narrative reflects the creation order, which embeds a divine intention that must be upheld in God's churches. Because this is a creation order issue, it cannot be said that Paul's prohibition on women's teaching or exercising authority is rooted in any first century cultural consideration, as many egalitarians argue. It is rooted, rather, in God's divine order. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today I have the pleasure of introducing Colin Smothers and his long form on complementarity. If you're looking for a complex or creative subtitle for this piece, you won't find it. When it comes to men and women, their equal standing before God and their distinct relations in marriage and the church, it's not complex. Scripture is clear for those willing to receive what the Bible says. Biblical complementarity, a term coined in the 1980s, describes a biblically derived view of men and women that is complementary. As both men and women are made in God's image, both possess an equal dignity and value before God. At the same time, men and women also enjoy different roles in the home and the household of God. This is biblical complementarity. And you would think that those who want to base their theology and their practice on God's Word would gladly receive what the Word of God says. But there's more. Historically, there have been many who have sought to reconstruct the church with creative ways that mirror the culture. And what does our culture look like today? Well, it looks absolutely confused on gender and ever ready to redefine and recreate roles for men and women in the church. In this context, it is assumed that women should be able to do everything a man does and that saying no to women preaching is some form of oppression. Yet, as Colin Smothers shows us in his long form, Scripture clearly teaches male-female complementarity and the principle of male headship. This means that the role of leadership in the church is grounded in creation and not caused by the fall. Moreover, male leadership in the church is confirmed by the created order. Indeed, in his long form, Colin will explain why men are called to lead their marriages, and equally why some men, who are above reproach and able to teach, are called to shepherd local churches. That is our burden this month. As dozens of churches across the Southern Baptist Convention employ and ordain women for pastoral ministry, Christ overall is going back to the Bible to ask this question. What does Scripture say? Are women permitted to teach and have authority in the Word of God? Or, if the Word of God does not say that, because 1 Timothy 2.12 clearly indicates that God has ordained certain men to teach in the church, then why are churches like Saddleback taking delight in promoting women preachers and female pastors? In a word, the answer is pragmatism and a disregard for biblical doctrine. Though they may not put it quite like that, many think that their approach to ministry is not only better than others, but better than God's as well. And so we have a new wave of churches seeking to put women in the pulpit. Among Southern Baptist churches, where an amendment constituting male pastors is on the docket for New Orleans in the 2023 Southern Baptist Convention, we should remember that the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is clear on the matter, because Scripture is clear. God has arranged His church to have strong and courageous, godly and grace-filled men serving as shepherds. In the Bible, it's not hard to see. And yet, such clarity is only available to those who want to receive and believe what the Bible says regardless of what the world says. 
Thankfully, there are many faithful men and women who teach what the Bible says. And one of them is my friend, Colin Smothers. Colin serves as executive director of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And recently, he has returned to Kenwood Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, to lead a new institute for pastoral training. Before that, he pastored in Wichita, Kansas, which is also his home state. Colin holds an MDiv and a PhD in Biblical Theology from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he has also taught adjunctly. Colin is married and has five children. Indeed, I can think of few people better equipped to address the subject of biblical complementarity and its opposite, egalitarianism. And so, with that introduction, let's listen to Colin Smothers' simply named but deeply important long form on complementarity. On Complementarity by Colin J. Smothers, read by Kevin McClure. Quote, The erasure of distinctions between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, it may be the most profound the race has ever confronted. End quote. World-renowned historian William Manchester made this observation in 1993 in a cover story for U.S. News and World Report. In his article, a world lit only by change. Manchester processed the colossal changes the world had undergone over the magazine's 60-year history. With 1933 to 1993 in the rearview mirror, a period that encompassed a world war, the rise and fall of empires, the advent of the internet, let alone the lightning advances in industrialization, transportation, and globalization, this master student of history landed on this surprising conclusion. No development heretofore experienced in the history of the world had the capacity to challenge life as we know it more than what he termed, quote, the erasure of the distinctions between the sexes, end quote. What did Manchester have in mind in 1993? At the time, this erasure of the distinctions between the sexes was merely functional. Quote, Women were admitted to bars and to the bar, to the dressing rooms of male athletes, to membership in men's clubs. Barber shops were vanishing, replaced by unisex hairdressers. Intersexual manners changed. What had been considered flirting could now be condemned as sexual harassment. End quote. Another contributing change not mentioned by Manchester, but one that is certainly part of the landscape, was the advent of women's ordination in several denominations. 1956 saw the Presbyterian Church USA ordain their first woman to ministry. The U.S. Episcopal Church ordained their first woman to the priesthood in 1974. And a general synod of the Church of England passed the vote to ordain women in 1992, something that C.S. Lewis himself had opposed in his time when he wrote Priestesses in the Church. Manchester's observation is striking on many levels. With so much world historical change before him, what led him to conclude that the most significant challenge humanity had ever faced was the erasure of male-female difference? Could he have known in 1993 how prescient this observation would be? 30 years on, we know how this sex erasure has proceeded and even accelerated. The functional erasure, women should be able to do anything a man can do, paved the way for an ontological erasure. Women should be able to be anything a man can be. After all, if a woman can be a pastor or a priest, a role traditionally reserved for qualified men, 
Why not a husband or father? Why can't a woman be a man? Such are the questions confronting Christians today. What does the Bible say and why? To provide biblical answers to these questions, to address this profound challenge, we need to reason biblically. What does the Bible say about the distinctions between the sexes? Are they mutable or are they innate? Are sex distinctions cultural or creational? These questions bring us to a more foundational one, especially as we attempt to think the Bible's thoughts after it in order to reason and believe accordingly, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, a la Romans 12.2. Why does the Bible say what it does about the distinctions between the sexes? In the rest of this article, I want to unpack a thesis on the Bible's teaching about what Manchester calls the distinction between the sexes. But first, a word about my motivations. I am driven, as I hope we all are, primarily by a pursuit of the truth, which I believe to be found unmixed in the pure Word of God. But I'm also particularly motivated to help others become convinced, as I am, that upholding the Bible's teaching on male-female complementarity not only stands against the erasure Manchester observed, but also that it is the last best hope for humanity in addressing the dire challenge that this erasure poses. Here's my thesis. The Bible teaches that men and women are equal yet different by divine design, a design that makes a difference in how we ought to live as male and female. I'll say it again. The Bible teaches that men and women are equal yet different by divine design, a design that makes a difference in how we ought to live as male and female. More concretely, the Bible teaches male headship in the marriage. See this in 1 Corinthians 11.3 and Ephesians 5.23, a principle that is affirmed and not undermined in the covenant community by restricting some governing and teaching roles to men. We see this in 1 Corinthians 14, 33-34, and 1 Timothy 2, 12. This teaching has been called complementarianism, note the first E, and it is summed up in the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. But just as important as what the Bible says is why it says it, which is why my thesis will make the following progression. One, Scripture clearly teaches male-female complementarity and the principle of male headship, which is, two, grounded in the pre-fall creation order, and three, is also grounded in nature. So starting with one, Scripture clearly teaches male-female complementarity and the principle of male headship. Bearing the divine image is a human person's most significant aspect. Being made in the image of God, or the imago Dei, establishes male-female equality in dignity and worth. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we learn that God created both male and female in His image. This is what we read in Genesis 1, 26-27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man. In Hebrew, this is Adam. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In these verses, not only are male and female both created in the image of God, they're also both referred to first by the generic Hebrew term Adam. Importantly, this term becomes the particular name of the first man in the very next chapter. But in Genesis 1, this name establishes Adamic headship and, by implication, male headship in the family. This concept is developed in Genesis 2 and referenced in later Revelation. We must also note the binary, dimorphic, dare we say, complementary shape of humanity made in God's image. Male and female, he created them. The very words used to describe the creation of the Adam in Genesis 1.27 as male and female point to a social sexual complementarity that is fleshed out in Genesis 2. The Hebrew term used for male in Genesis 1.27 is a word that etymologically hints at outwardness and prominence as a definitional aspect of this creature. And the Hebrew term for female is a word that etymologically hints at inwardness and receptivity. Directly after the Bible establishes male-female equality in the Imago Dei and complementarity in sexual differentiation, we're shown one of the reasons why God established male-female difference in Genesis 1.28. We read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. First, we should note that male-female equality is reinforced in this verse. Both male and female are addressed by this divine command, God said to them. But the command cannot be carried out apart from the pair's complementary dimorphic difference. The male and female have different obligations in carrying out this creation mandate. In order to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, procreation is required, which requires male-female difference working together, bodily complementarity. Some interpreters have suggested that the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill plays more to feminine attributes, and the command to subdue and have dominion more to masculine attributes. And there seems to be something to this. While each domain of activity is given to both the man and the woman in ways fitting to their bodily uniqueness, how this activity is carried out will necessarily be inflected through the gendered reality of God's crowning creation. Male-female similarity and difference are further affirmed and developed in Genesis 2. A careful reader of this chapter will note the detailed differences in how and for what purpose the male and woman are created. They are similar, yet different. Man is made first and from the ground, Genesis 2-7. God puts him in the garden, in 2-8, to work and to keep it, 2-15, and to name the animals, 
and 220. Coordinately, woman is made second and from the side of man, Genesis 2.21. She is, quote, a helper fit for him, end quote, in 2.18, and is named by the man in 2.23. Why these differences? This is one of the most important questions to ponder. God could have made the man and woman at the same time and then in the exact same way, but the different complementary ways in which God makes the man and woman are intentional. These creational differences are meant to teach us something from the very beginning about male and female peculiarity and purpose, something about the principle of male headship and female helpership. We see something similar in how God created the universe. Instead of creating everything instantaneously, God created in six days and he rested on the seventh. He did so for a purpose, in order to establish a pattern of the week. You can see Exodus 20, verse 11. In a similar vein, the very way in which God created man and woman is meant to teach us about the pattern of male-female equality and difference. Genesis 1 and 2 are meant, in part, to prepare the people of God to receive special instructions from the scriptures about what male-female difference means for their lives. Once we're properly catechized in the male-female complementarity of Genesis 1 and 2, we're ready to turn to these instructions. While we believe all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training all of God's people in righteousness, a la 2 Timothy 3.16, The Bible does give certain commands according to male-female difference, and some of these commands point to particular callings. The principle of male headship or authority in the family and the church is not only affirmed, but also commanded or assumed in multiple places in the Bible. Perhaps it is helpful to list in one place the New Testament verses that directly address upholding and honoring this principle. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 11, 2-3. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 1 Corinthians 14, 33b-34. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 1 Timothy 2.12 I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 1 Peter 3.1-7 Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good 
and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Ephesians 5.22-24 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Colossians 3.18-19 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We could also bring in other scriptures that have implicit application to the complementarian position on upholding the principle of male headship, such as the fact that the Levitical priesthood was male, like in Exodus 29, 29-30 and Numbers 18:1, or that Jesus chose 12 male disciples, see this in Matthew 10, 1-4 and parallels, or that the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are for qualified men. But as a plain reading of the text above conveys, the position of the New Testament writers is that men are called by God to lead their families and to lead in the church. Again, a position we refer to today as complementarianism. Two, Scripture's teaching on the principle of male headship is grounded in the pre-fall creation order. Some would argue that the verses on male headship and authority cited above were applicable during a certain era of the church because of the patriarchal first-century culture in which the church was born. Due to this culture, certain concessions were made for the sake of the spread of the gospel that would or should be overturned when the church reached greater maturity. Many egalitarians point to the issue of slavery as an analog issue. New Testament writers made concessions that allowed for slavery while speaking subtly against it, and thereby they showed that the trajectory of their teaching was for all slavery to be outlawed in the future. Interestingly, Jesus seems to have had a category for this kind of concession as it relates to male and female roles. When countering the teaching of the Pharisees on divorce in Matthew 19, Jesus appeals to the pre-fall chapters of Genesis. In so doing, he articulates a normative hermeneutical principle when he states, from the beginning, it was not so, in Matthew 19, 3-9. In other words, God's original creation presents what ought to be so, and by implication, it also teaches what ought not be so. The problem with egalitarians comparing slavery's abolishment with the abolishment of male-female roles, though, is that Scripture nowhere grounds slavery in the creation order. But the biblical authors do ground male headship and authority in God's good pre-fall creation. God's creation in the beginning has a certain divine order that though marred by sin, is sustained and restored through grace. Grace, then, helps us understand nature. Thus, when the New Testament authors write about male headship and authority, they follow Jesus back to the beginning 
an appeal to the creation order. They invoke what seems to be minutia in the creation narrative in order to ground their gendered exhortations to the churches on male headship. Note carefully Paul's reasoning in 1 Timothy 2, 12-13 for why he restricts ecclesial teaching and authority to men only. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man for a creational reason. For Adam was formed first, then Eve in 1 Timothy 2.13. The creation narrative reflects the creation order which embeds a divine intention that must be upheld in God's churches. Because this is a creation order issue, it cannot be said that Paul's prohibition on women's teaching or exercising authority is rooted in any first century cultural consideration, as many egalitarians argue. It is rooted, rather, in God's divine order. Paul uses similar reasoning in 1 Corinthians 11. After establishing the principle of male headship in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul goes on to give one example of how this principle should be affirmed and not undermined in the covenant assembly through a discussion of head coverings. His reasoning is instructive. Quote, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 1 Corinthians 11.8-9. Regardless of what one may think is normative for the church in Paul's teaching about head coverings, this practical outworking of male headship is grounded in the pre-fall creation order. Paul here is teaching that God created the world in the way he did in order for creation to fulfill its created purpose. Part of God's purpose is the principle of male headship which he established from the beginning through the way he created mankind, woman from man for man. But Paul is not content to leave it there. He seems to raise the stakes by tagging this strong admonition at the end of his section on male headship. Quote, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 16. Following Jesus, Paul points us back to how things were in the beginning, before the fall, in Genesis 1 and 2. In this way, the New Testament writers exhort Christians to live according to our divinely created purpose, which is rooted in God's design in creation when he made them male and female in his image. 3. Scripture's teaching on the principle of male headship is grounded in nature. Complementarians debate among themselves the full range of implications of the creational differences between men and women. But since Christians confess that God created everything from nothing, all of creation reflects God's creative purposes. The Scriptures affirm that nature reflects God's purposes— which can be perceived even by non-believers through their God-given faculties of reason, according to Romans 1, 18-23. That is to say, what God's Word says to be true is consistent with what is actually the case in the created world, or nature, all around us. 
think about what it would be like if the opposite were true. If nature consistently taught one thing while the scriptures affirmed another, we would be left confused by God's purposes for creating the way he did. If God's word affirmed the principle of male leadership in the home, for instance, but nature taught us that females are better equipped to lead and to protect and provide, then God's will would stand over against God's acts in creation in a dissonant way. Thankfully, this is not what is reflected in nature when it comes to God's purposes for male and female. The scripture affirms a certain fittedness to male headship that accords with nature. For instance, in 1 Peter 3, after commanding wives to be subject to their husbands and husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, Peter goes on to argue why it must be so, because the woman is the weaker vessel, 1 Peter 3, 7. Now, while there are different interpretations as to what Peter means by weaker vessel, we can at least recognize that Peter is appealing to something inherent to women as women that is not inherent to men as men. This womanly difference means that a husband must relate to his wife in a way that will be incongruent to the way a wife relates to her husband. The husband has a responsibility to be more tender than his wife. The concept of natural fittedness is related to the point above about scriptural teaching being grounded in the creation order, but it is also more than that. If we didn't have the creation narrative, we could still arrive at some approximation of the way men and women are designed to function and relate to one another. Men, on average, are stronger than women and have larger frames that are better suited to physicality. Women, on the other hand, have bodies better suited to caring for and nurturing the next generation, as their very bodies are the sign of growth and sustenance for the very young. This is why men across time and space are generally more given to leading, providing, and protecting, while women are more given to nurturing and raising the next generation. This is not to deny that there are exceptions to this admitted generalization, but the fact that they are exceptions proves the rule. The predominant sociological data that we have from cultures around the world generally reflect the biblical order of male-female difference and the principle of male headship. Thus, when we consider the scriptural commands in light of nature and vice versa, there is a certain beautiful harmony to the way God's world works. We can say that what we see in scripture is fitting with what we see in nature or in reality. To put it another way, in line with language from older theologians, the book of nature accords with the book of scripture. We shouldn't be surprised then when efforts rooted in disobedience to scripture run contrary to nature or even actively attempt to disrupt or reconstruct nature. To take on God's design, one has to take on creation and nature itself. This is why sexual revolutionaries want to dismiss the created reality of the gender binary, namely that people are ineradically male and female. This is why the many variations of the so-called transgender movement, a movement that traces its origins to radical feminism and a Marxist ideology, this is why this movement is at war with manhood 
and womanhood and the family. But nature testifies to a humanity created male and female, or XY and XX, and no surgeon has a scalpel sharp enough to reshape the genetic binary, X and Y, wired by God from the beginning in creation. The way of complementarianism is better because it is true and it is good and it affirms the beauty of male and female equality and difference. Conclusion. If the quote-unquote erasure of distinctions between the sexes is the most profound issue the human race has ever faced, as William Manchester contended, then we had better have an answer. And there can be no better answer than that supplied by reason shaped and informed by the Word of God and revealed in nature. Our culture has become dangerously confused on this issue, as biological men dominate women in women's sporting events, as women are forced to shower with biological men in the military, and as adolescents who identify outside of their God-given sex attempt suicide at an astonishing rate. The Bible's clear vision for manhood and womanhood is, in fact, the last best hope for addressing this chaos. The fact is, the Bible shines forth with this glorious truth. Men and women are equal yet different by divine design. This difference is testified in God's Word, and it is testified in God's world. It is hard to kick against the goats. That is, it is hard to fight against the reality of nature. And when we embrace these differences and our unique status as men and women, we find the flourishing that God intends for all those who follow Him by faith. If the direction of Scripture calls men towards headship in the home and leadership in the church, then it goes against God's revelation for women to take hold of what God has not given them, such as those who would preach the Word of God in the household of God. Not only do we find Scripture that speaks directly to this point, 1 Timothy 2, 12-13 and 3, 1-7, but we also see an entire universe that points against this role reversal. In the last several generations, in step with Manchester's observation of the erasure of the distinctions between the sexes, women have become preachers, pastors, and clerical priests in the church. Because of this, the authority of the Word of God in the church has suffered, and our apprehension of God's world has suffered. Women in pulpits has more to do with men in petticoats than you may think. Why is this the case? Because the same God who upholds the universe with the word of his power is the same God who declared that men must lead in the home and the church, and thus it is his command and his design, not ours, that says qualified men should teach and exercise authority in the church. Indeed, there is no other way to uphold the word of God but to submit to this fundamental feature of creation and canon that God made men and women differently. We cannot interchange roles without doing damage to the Word and to the world.